0: Well, if you're joining us for the first time on a Sunday evening, a little different format for us, a little less formal format, and our study is entitled Simply the Savior, and it's an opportunity for us to really kind of experience what the disciples actually experienced. You see as Jesus wandered around the hillsides and through the region of Galilee he often took opportunity as those opportunities presented themselves to sit down with the disciples and to teach them and there's one monumental case found in Matthew's gospel which we'll turn our attention to next that most of you know as the sermon on the mount It's found beginning in Matthew chapter 5, it continues through Matthew chapter 7, and it is the most life-changing message that has ever been preached by anyone ever throughout time. It is the most demanding message ever taught by anyone ever at any time, and it comes from the lips of Jesus. It begins with ten verses that we commonly know as the Beatitudes. Those things are the character, the nature of Christ described in a way that's directly opposed to everything that the world holds dear. And it is directly opposed to the writer of Matthew's gospel's understanding as a Jewish man of his relationship with God because the Jewish person living at that time they loved the law they honored the law they kept the law we love the law too but we love the law differently for the law for us as Paul said is simply now a schoolmaster helps us look back the way we were the things we should not be but we no longer are bound under the law because we've been set free by grace. At the time, the Jewish people, still very much with their eyes on the law, still trying to earn God's favor, still trying to uh, work away. And so Jesus takes them to this place that when we travel next year about this time to Israel, we'll we'll go onto the Mount of the Beatitudes and we'll look down towards the cove of the sower, this natural amphitheater, and by this time Jesus had gathered with him a very, very large crowd, likely left over from his teachings and his miracles, and as he moved from place to place in the region around the Sea of Galilee, this would be on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and and he would have at that time been walking with perhaps what we would call an entourage. And if you have to remember, during that day and time, they didn't have the AMC-20 Cineplex. Amen? They, they, they weren't going to go home and log onto the internet, onto YouTube. Uh, they weren't going to go home and click on their cable or their satellite television. They were not going to you know head off to a ball game. They weren't going to go to Chavez Ravine and watch the Dodgers. They weren't going to do any of those kind of things. There was... Virtually nothing to do socially except for hang out in synagogue and then to visit with those who would travel around the region and teach. And they were varied and they were many. But Jesus had gathered a crowd. And as Jesus gathered that crowd and as he traveled with him, the crowd itself attracted other people. And so as Jesus now attracts this huge crowd that's going to sit down, it's been estimated, several sound studies done in that particular little amphitheater region that goes from the hill that is the Mount of the Beatitudes where there's a Catholic shrine and it descends down to the edge of the sea, there's an area there that perhaps as many as 10,000 people could have gathered very easily and listened to the audible voice of, of a teacher who would have been speaking from the water's edge. It would have carried up the hill. And so Jesus is now going to embark on this life-changing message. It begins, if you turn there, to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And he says, Seeing the multitudes. In other words, he looks and he goes, This is an opportunity because word of mouth was the general best way to convey any message at the time. That region of the Sea of Galilee lies at the crossroads of two Roman roads, one that would have led around going over to the eastern side to modern-day Jordan, and one heading south, what is uh, through the town of Tiberias, along through Capernaum, and and down along the, the western sea, and then north to Tel Dan. And so Jesus being at that place goes to this unique little amphitheater and he thinks to himself, and I'm sure because he was God he didn't have to think too hard, but as he looks at this multitude he realizes if I can get these 10,000 people we'll just round it off. If I can get this multitude this message it's going to travel very quickly to the regions around And so Jesus, it says there in verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. And so this first part, he's going to speak to the disciples, and then he's going to turn, and the whole multitude is going to hear the remainder of the message. And so the Beatitudes, these things which we find so absolutely impossible from a human standpoint, he begins with these incredible truths. Father, we pray tonight that these incredible truths would be ours. And Lord, as we embark on this journey with you, Jesus, Lord, this life-changing message, this nearly impossible message, Lord, it is an impossible message without you in us. And so, Lord, we ask tonight, that you would move in us to will and to accomplish your good pleasure. Lord, speak to us. Uh, We ask that you would be in our presence and that we would be in your midst. Lord, could we gather like one of the disciples? Could we sit near? Could we hear, Lord, your voice as we gather together tonight, this multitude? And so, Father, we give it to you. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Up to now in Matthew's Gospel, the first four full chapters, Jesus' words, if you have a red-letter Bible and you turn there, you're going to find that there are just six verses that are in red. Jesus' words themselves have been recorded very sparingly. But as you get to what will follow, you're going to find that it's largely the words of the Lord himself. He's going to sit down and actually speak this message. These full next three chapters in Matthew's Gospel... Uh, will be one incredibly powerful and compact message. The message begins with the Beatitudes, which we're going to get to first. And and it's revolutionary because this would be uh, almost as if there were a new Torah being written to a Jew. To the Jewish person, those first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, as those first five books would have been what they understood, God's transmission of his will for them, to them. Uh, This is a completely different message. And so this message is going to be the foundation of the new covenant. It's going to be God speaking by his son, Jesus Christ, this dawning of a new age, And it's something that would be so foreign to those that were listening because they were so used to the rigidity of the law. And he's about to set them free, and he's also about to flip the tables over on them. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he was writing his commentary on this wonderful series of, of studies that he did on the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, he said it's similar to someone walking in a store today and without the owner's notice changing every single price tag in the entire store. To where when you walked back in, something that was $2 is now 50 And something that was 50 is now $2. And people would just look at it and go, how could that possibly be? I mean, this is, you know, we would look at it and go, well, this is a, a spoon. It's supposed to be two ninety-nine, And yet it says it's $100 now. You see, Jesus was going to turn their world upside down. As he began to speak to them, there's only ten very action-packed verses uh, that are the Beatitudes themselves. The Sermon on the Mount is the remainder of the three chapters. And remember that far from God being a cosmic killjoy, He knows exactly what will bring us real joy. Amen? He knows how to speak into our lives truths that will actually make us able to live lives that are meaningful and purposeful and filled with the right kind of joy. Because our world is is exactly the opposite. We find joy in some of the dumbest things. Amen? Think about some of the things that we find joy in in our world. Like UFC. We find joy in watching one person beat someone else nearly to death. If that's not weird, and I happen to be a martial artist, so I, I'm I'm saying to you, that's weird. That's strange from a human standpoint, especially from God's standpoint. That to me seems a little bit odd that we would find joy in someone bleeding. We find joy in throwing our money away. You ever noticed that? It's called, it's called retail therapy. And and many of you in here have engaged in it. You go to the store and and you look at all these things that are there and just because they're less money than they were before, all of a sudden there's some great bargain. (laughs) You don't need them, you don't want them, you don't even know where you're going to put them, but you buy them anyway. And you think it's joy. Endless relationships that go nowhere. It's supposed to bring you joy. Things that destroy your mind and destroy your body are supposed to bring you happiness and bring you joy. If I just, you know, get to know this guy or this lady, if I just do this drug or if I just drink this thing, watching television, it's like, are you kidding me? This is joy? You know, somehow that if you just spend every waking moment imbibing in some kind of alcoholic beverage that you'll become healthy, wealthy, wise and better looking? Isn't that what the world tells you? That's supposed to bring you joy. There's nothing like that in this message. It's exactly the opposite of that. It's death to self. It's denial of flesh. It's considering others first, before you even consider yourself. It's us living our lives in such a way that we are literally living out Christ's existence while we're here. If Jesus could be you, and you could be Jesus, which can't happen, but if it could, you would be a walking, talking, living, breathing, sharing representative of of exactly how Jesus would act if we live this message out. People would be healed. Needs would be met. Lives would be changed and transformed. The lost would be found. You see, God knows what it takes to make us truly happy. The Greek word that you use here, blessed, as we get into the Beatitudes, it is a very strange word, and it's makarios, and it means to be happy, it means to be fortunate. It was used by the Greeks very frequently to describe someone who was successful in business. Homer and Hesiod both used it in, in reference to the Greek pantheon of gods, the multiplicity of gods, that they would be happy within themselves because no one was better off than they. And so in the context of this, when, when the Lord Jesus says blessed, he's speaking at a time when people would have understood it from a Greek perspective. In other words, if you're blessed, you actually have the happiness of a God who doesn't get affected by outward circumstances. Amen? You see the picture? In other words, you would have thought at that day and time, if you believe such a thing, That the gods who dwelt on Mount Olympus, you know, Zeus would be there and Mercury and all these, you know, this Greek pantheon would be conversing with one another and they couldn't care less about the peons that lived below them. They had no thought for anyone else because they were so happy within themselves. In other words, it was an internal happiness. It was not an external happiness because there was still chaos going on on the earth. There were still things that were bad that were happening. It just didn't touch them because their internal identity could not be changed. And so when Jesus says, blessed is, he's referring to a state of contentedness that is not affected and is not directed by your outward circumstance. That's a place most of us would like to be, yeah? I would. I like to wake up every day and no matter what happens, it won't affect me. Paul wrote about that in Philippians chapter 4, didn't he? Wasn't that what he said? Verse 10, it says there, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now that at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Remember, Paul was writing from prison, and he was looking at the situation that had happened in his life where people were taking care of him because he had great need and the church at Philippi had been ministering to him, but they lacked an opportunity to do so because of his circumstance. But he says this, not that I really speak with regard to need, for I've learned to be content in whatever state that I find myself. He says, look, it's not about the state that I'm in. It's not whether I have things or don't have things. It's not whether I'm you know, in this town or in that town. He said in verse 12, I know how to be abased. It's a word we don't use much anymore. But it means to be laid low. I've learned how to be content when I'm laid low. Now, when we think of that, and then we think of the word blessed or blessed, that's kind of tough to put those two concepts together, amen? Please lay me low so I can be blessed. We don't think that way. And yet... From God's perspective, we can actually be blessed even though we are destitute, poor. And I've seen those people. I've spent time with people in that very state. I've walked through the favelas of Sao Paulo, Brazil. I've seen millions of people who have nothing. They scavenge through trash piles to find their food every single day wear mismatched shoes, clothes that were worn out long before they got them, but they love the Lord. And somehow there's a state of contentedness. He said, I know how to abound in everywhere, and in all things I've learned to be both full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. And then the verse that we all know, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Amen? That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount and very specifically the Beatitudes. You see, our our blessed state doesn't depend on our outward circumstances. And God wants to give us a type of happiness that flows from him and not just from the world around us. Because the world around us is changing, isn't it? When you think of your world and you, you look at the place that you live in, the neighborhood that you live in, Growing up here and being a native Southern and having lived here all but one year of my entire life, the nearly year that we lived in Austria, we've lived here in, in some place between here and San Diego County the entire time. You know, we, we look at our world. Our world is changing. I grew up in a day and you could literally sit on the porch of our house in Poway, pull out your twenty two, sit down on the porch, and you could shoot jackrabbits out in the field in front of your house. You do that now, you'll be in jail in five minutes, right? There used to be a day and a time. We, used to, we were able to get on horses and ride horses from our ranch in Poway down Penasquitas Canyon all the way to the beach at La Jolla. You do that now, you'll be dead ten times over crossing the freeways. Our world is changing and some of the things that we look back on with great fondness—they're gone forever, folks. They're not coming back. The good old days gone and went. Every time I look in the mirror, I realize that. <laughs> the good old days—they be gone. They, they, Elvis, long left the building. <laughs> you know. So it's not dependent. I, I'm always kind of stunned when I see people who are very obvious trying to act, you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years younger than they really are. Who wants to stay here? If you're a believer, this, you know, this world is not your home. And so, blessed, this doesn't come from having, you know, a whole bunch of plastic surgery and trying to look younger than you are. It doesn't come from living in the past. It comes from being a citizen of the future. It comes from the understanding that heaven is your real home and we're all on a journey to there and one day we're going to step out of time and into eternity and all things are going to be really good. Amen? It becomes very clear when you listen to this message that blessedness is something that only those who have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can truly have. People can enjoy things and they do. You know, you watch people coming into King Harbor on their yacht. They generally are smiling. Unless they happen to have been out with their, with their wife, a husband and wife should never sail together. Because it's always, you know, honey, get on the dock. you know, And then all of a sudden he's running over her, which never works out really well. But we find blessedness in some of the things that we do. There's some temporary happiness to that. That's a nice thing. You go on vacation, it's a nice thing, yeah. But the Lord is saying, look, there's a life that transcends nice things. Nice homes, nice cars, money, all that stuff. And it comes from an inner contentedness. And we belong to the Lord. We have that inner contentedness available to us. The biblical picture of this whole message is one that's really very interesting when you look at it. The last message of the Old Testament is pretty dire and pretty gloomy. If you read the book of Malachi, they're in chapter 4, verse, sec, verse 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's the end of the Old Testament. A threat of a curse. And yet when we get to the beatitude, we find this incredible series of blessings so the old testament ends with the warning of a curse the new testament period of time begins with this promise of blessing the old testament characterized by lightning and thunder and mount sinai and people being afraid and they're at the bottom of the mountain shaking in their boots wondering what's going on with moses the new testament is characterized uh, by, by Mount Zion, by grace, by salvation, by inner contentedness and the promise of peace and of blessing. You see, is a very, very different testimony that, that the New Testament believers were going to bring to the world. Because the law kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. Amen? Well, the law is a bummer. If you uh, Challenge yourself. Try and do the Ten Commandments just for a day. Just for a day. And you cannot put yourself in like a cargo container where it's all dark and try not to see anything. Just live your life in a regular manner and try and live out the Ten Commandments for one day and see if you can do it. There's not a person in here who's going to succeed. Not one of us. Because you're going to have a false god at some point in time, you surely are going to covet something. You, you won't be able to do it. It's not possible in your humanness, in your flesh. You're going to look at something, you're going to go, man, I sure wish I had one of those. It might even be your lunch, but you're going to covet something. You're dead in your trespasses and sins without Jesus, amen? It's over. You see, at that day and time, it was just as impossible, except they believed somehow it was going to be possible. They keep the feast, they keep the law, you just do enough right things, and somehow it's all going to work out it'll never work out. That's why you need grace to save us, amen? That's why you need the faith to believe, amen? You you see, that's the whole message of, of the Beatitudes. It ties in with our passage this morning. Jesus was about to do something that no one had ever done before because the Jewish people were looking for an interesting kind of Messiah, and from a Jewish perspective, who they were looking for was actually mostly a military ruler, He was gonna come and set up a kingdom. The Jewish people were gonna rule with the Messiah. They were gonna become fabulously wealthy. They were gonna become the ruling class like an oligarchy. And they would kinda take over the world. That was their basic understanding. And so when Jesus began to do miracles, if you remember in John chapter six, they actually tried to seize him by force to make him king. They said, if this guy can do these things, this is the kind of guy that we think we want as our leader, as our king. And so they were going to try and force him to do that. Jesus spoke to that same crowd, and he said this when he was questioned about whether he was the king of the Jews. The Lord replied, My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus didn't come to simply fix the world that we currently live in, he came to usher in an era that will end with a new heaven and a new earth and a complete do-over of this one. He said, for if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would, would be fighting that I might be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He says, look, You guys would be all jockeying for position. You'd you'd be trying to get your part of the pie, but this isn't my kingdom. This isn't the one that's going to be the ultimate kingdom. And so this message is the message of that kingdom. And so Jesus is going to go on. He's going to give us these internal principles. And this is where it becomes very, very important for us because as Jesus is speaking, there are four basic groups of people on this earth that were thinking in this way. And the world that we live in today holds high people that have all manner of wrong thoughts and actions. Amen? Look how we reward pro-athletes. And again, as soon as I say these things, there are all kinds of pro-athletes that love the Lord Jesus. Okay, So it's not all, but many. I think we could say, you know, that's probably not a good way for a Christian to live their life. We look at Certainly those in the music industry. Same thing is true. There are some Christian musicians who love the Lord, but a vast majority are just fabulously wealthy, and they squander it. You know, how, how can you look at the life of Miley Cyrus and not go, that, that girl needs some serious help. She needs Jesus is what she needs. Because she thinks there's some glorious end to the way she's living her life. And Jesus is going to speak to that. Politicians who have tons of power. Corporate executives that have both money and power. We idolize these people. And yet during the time that Jesus spoke this message, do you remember who he said was the greatest man on the face of the earth at the time? Think about it for a second. You'll probably come up with it. Jesus said of John the Baptist that there was not born of men on the earth one greater than John the Baptist. Think about it for a second. A guy who wandered around in a cloak of camel's hair, a guy who ate wild honey. If you've ever seen a wild honeycomb, there's usually some bees still in it. It's not like the stuff we squeeze out of a bottle. He ate, you know, wild, lo- he ate grasshoppers and wild honey and yet Jesus said about him there wasn't one greater on the face of the earth than him now if I told you hey I want you to be great and you all have to go sell everything you have and get some nice burlap garments and we need to eat whatever we can find, you know, over in one of the fields. You know, maybe over by the Exxon refinery. There's still a little bit of field over there. And you can wander and see if you can collect a few grasshoppers. Or maybe you might find a beehive. And, and, and praise God, brother. You're all going to say, Jeff's lost his mind. He finally cracked. Something happened. And yet... It wasn't the outward that Jesus was referring to. It was the inward. He was talking about the man that John was inside. The man who wasn't afraid to confront the king of the region, Herod. (laughs) Dude, that's your brother's wife you're living with. And it cost him his head, amen? That's the kind of inward contentedness that says, this world holds nothing for me that's the message the religious atmosphere of that time there were four principal groups the pharisees the sadducees the essenes and the zealots that existed in that region and if you look at these four groups they represent the four basic places that people uh, kind of land theologically in our world today especially those who don't know the lord the Pharisees were what we would call legalists. They looked at the whole world through a set of rules and regulations and laws. And so if you were a Pharisee, remember Paul the Apostle was of the Pharisees. He was also a ruling member of the Sanhedrin, which is the religious legal court that held court at the end, at the edge of the Temple Mount on the south side. They would meet there to decide the weightier matters of the law. And there the law would be applied in their lives. So you had the the Pharisees, and, and they were fastidious in their observance of all of the feasts, and Jesus was constantly kind of coming in contact with these guys, right? Go through the field with the disciples, they'd be gleaning, they'd gather up a little bit of grain, and they'd get chastised for it. Jesus wouldn't wash his hands the right way, and somebody would come and say, oh Yo, look, you didn't wash your hands the right way. Aren't you glad you're not coming to church to figure out how to wash your hands the right way? Nobody agrees on that, right? Well, should you use alcohol sanitizer? Should you use the foam stuff? Should you wash with your hands up in the air? Should it be, should it be hot water, cold? We can't even figure that out. We can't. Then you have the Sadducees, and they were the, the liberal intellectuals of the day. Now, I would say to you that we have absolutely legalists today in our world, and we absolutely have intellectuals who are socially liberal in other words they basically don't believe in anything supernatural it's kind of a cut and dry world but for the most part anything goes that was the Sadducees the Essenes were what we would call ascetics or people who live kind of a monastic lifestyle they were the guys that locked themselves away in caves we will visit them when we go to the city of Qumran We see the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were taken care of by the essence. They put themselves in very inhospitable places. They lived in ways that you and I couldn't even imagine. Some hole in the middle of a barren desert where it gets 120 degrees during the day in the summer and it gets below freezing at night during the winter. And they just figured, well, you know, if I just deny my flesh, we have those people and then you have the zealots, and those are the people that you you find living mostly in Montana, and they have bomb shelters. (laughs) You have the zealots, they're waiting for the military coup, and one day there's going to, a ruler's going to come on the scene, and we're going to dig out all of our survival food, we're going to get out our weapons, and we're going to take the world back over. I would say to you, those four groups still exist in our world today. And Jesus is going to speak to the issues That all four groups have as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes. They were political activists. They were revolutionaries. They actually looked down on their fellow Jews because they weren't tough enough. They weren't rough enough. They weren't bad enough. They didn't wear camo to church, they had no flak jackets. So, in essence, the Pharisees said, Let's go back to Mount Zion. The Sadducees said, that's old news, let's go ahead into some new theology. The Essence just told everybody, go away. And the Zealot said, let's go against whoever else there is, because we're the only right ones. Does it sound like your world today with regard to how people view religion in general? You have the people that say, let's go back, let's do it the old way. You have the people, let's go so far ahead we forget who Jesus is. You have the people that say, don't join our club. You wouldn't want to because you'd ruin it anyway. And the zealots are just like, we're against everybody. doesn't matter what you believe, you're wrong. Jesus is going to take into account all these principal groups as he moves through and and speaks to these issues of life. The Pharisees were what we call traditionalists. The Sadducees were modernists. The Essenes were separatists, and the Zealots were activists. And so we see these groups. So this message is very powerful for us today, tonight, isn't it? Because you have those types of people in your life right now. You have people who are absolutely fundamentalists and traditionalists who say, well, you don't do church the way we used to do it. I've bumped into some of them. I've talked to them well, you know, we have to have this and we had that and, you know, when we did it this way, it was better. Look, the Lord is a God of great diversity, amen? And where there are two or more gathered in the name of the Lord, He's in their midst. Doesn't matter what you're wearing. Doesn't matter how you're doing it. You can have a robe, no robe, suit, no suit. You could even, I know this might shock someone, you can be saved and wear shorts and flip-flops. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. Think about it. And yet, isn't it weird how the church is still filled with people? Well, you know, we don't do it that way because we've never done it that way. And then you have the people who go so far the other way, they're, they're encouraging everyone to come to, sh- come to church wearing flip-flops and shorts. Saying, oh, by the way, we're doing communion with Coke and potato chips this week. So you you have the other side, and then you have the separatists, don't come to our church, because we're holy. If you ever have a church like that, uh, do yourself a favor, give them what they want, don't go to their church. (laughs) And then you have the activists, that everything has to be some kind of thing that they're against something or someone somewhere. You're going to see as this unfolds before us over these next weeks, how the Lord just starts nailing all of these things. The central focus is not what you are on the outside; it's what you are on the inside. I've had some crazy experiences when you pray with people who you know are freshly uh, believers. Who you know they just hey, they have some crazy prayers. And they use some language that's kind of like, hmm, I'm not sure I'd say that that way. <laughs> See, you prayed with some of those people too. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like, well, you know, God heard their heart. I didn't know the Lord used that language, but, <laughs> and, and again, I'm not encouraging anybody to go there, but God heard the intent of that person's heart. He was not listening to the, to the slang. He wasn't listening to the words, that maybe you and I would go, I don't think I'd use that. You see, we need to kind of remember who our God is. And Jesus is going to remind us. You see, no amount of law-keeping can get you there. And matter of fact, to the Pharisees, he said, and he's going to say it very soon, coming up in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now why would he say something like that? What he was actually saying is, look, these are the most righteous people externally that we know. They, they have the law down, they have the feast down, they do everything the right way. They never carry a burden on the Sabbath. You know, they've got it nailed. And so Jesus says, look, they're not good enough. That's what he's saying to them. They're not good enough to get into heaven. So there's got to be some other way. And so he's talking to them about something else other than their external life, the things that we could see and that we could look at. And so what's he talking about? The internal things. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. It's speaking of King Saul, amen? Here's king, well, here's obviously he's got to be king. I mean, the dude is six foot four. He's 235. He's cut. He, he's, he's been on the hydroxy cut commercials. I mean, he shops at Nordstrom's. He's got, you know, he's got the finest wardrobe. He eats free range chicken. He's a vegan. He's got it going on. I mean, just look at him. You can tell. But the Lord looks at the heart. Amen? And so. God saying, I'm going to mess with them. I'm going to choose David. The run of the litter. But David's heart was a heart like God's heart. Matter of fact, so much so that Scripture would actually say that David was a man after God's own heart. wasn't looking for a tall Saul. He was looking for a heart like David's. Pharisees, Jesus is having lunch nearby, and having lunch with them bothered him. And, and Jesus, you have to, from a Jewish perspective, when you washed your hands ceremonially for a meal, you couldn't even let the rinse water go back on your fingers. So when you washed your hands, you had to wipe them properly with the water. You would shake them and then turn your hands up towards the heavens so that the water dripped off of your elbows. It was a major deal to wash your hands. It's kind of like when you see doctors and they wash their hands and they put their hands up in the air so that no bacteria ends back on them because they've actually touched their own hands again. It was the same thing. And Jesus is just, you know, hey, we're, eating a, a, we're doing some barbecue right here. And uh, so we're going to do our best, but we're going to dig in. And they're in Luke chapter 11. And now you Pharisees have a habit of cleaning the outside of your cups. They would wipe the rim of their cup case a fly or something had landed on it and maybe left something behind that could have been ceremonially unclean. You wipe your cups, you wipe your dishes, but inside you yourselves are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? And so the Beatitudes look at our insides. They look at who we are internally. And he said, basically, dedicate yourself once and for all to an inner self that's clean. Because once you have the inside clean, everything else is good. There's some things that are important as we move forward. It's not that we just do the right things, it's we be the right kind of people. Too many people focus on just simply being what they think other people want to see out of Christians. And it's kind of humorous, actually, at times, to listen to people's conversation. When, when you spend as much time around children as I have, and you listen to kids, and then all of a sudden the camp director comes walking up, "My hearing's pretty good for an old guy. And, and so you, and you can tell they're using profanity, they're talking all kinds of, they're talking smack about each other, and you walk up and all of a sudden, "Well, praise the Lord." <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And you walk away, and they're right back to the same profanity that they were saying before. You see, they're not fooling anybody. God's not going, wow, look at that, my child. No, he's going, you need some help. The inside's the problem. It's not the outside. It's not what you're saying. It's who you actually are internally that matters. It's what you do with what you have. And you see, he was going to remind them that you need to be one of his kids for this stuff to make any sense. And it actually drives people to a relationship with Christ. And so it's a wonderful witnessing tool. It gives us a beautiful pattern for our happiness going forward in our lives. You see, when you change your, you shift your paradigm to, to look on the inside and what you're doing here, then the outside stuff takes its proper place. And that is how we really get contentedness or happiness or blessedness in this world. You look at the outside stuff and you say, you know what, I'm still going to heaven. I've still got a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Jesus begins to speak these truths that at times seem almost contradictory. They, you look at them, they're, they're so paradoxical that when you hear the blessed are the meek, The humble, the poor in spirit, how are those people blessed? We look at them and we go, ah, they're cursed. Poor in spirit? Does that mean poor in spirits? What does that mean? No, it's an inner state. And so as Jesus sets the stage, he says, seeing the multitudes, Jesus is always concerned that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. His word there in 2 Peter chapter 3 is absolutely his heart towards mankind. He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so when he looks at the multitude he sees the vast array of lostness and he's attracted to, to the various stratas of people. You know, It's almost humorous. I, I, I have to admit I kind of enjoy the transition of you know driving down vermont and as you get you know to harbor city and then you start to pull up there to pv and then you turn up in any of the roads up to pv and again i'm not against anybody who lives in pv but there's a market difference between harbor city and pv amen <laughs> you know and i'm i'm not again the people are the same and that's my point to you The Lord is just as concerned with the people in Harbor City, the people in Compton, the people who are living in in the worst parts of wherever you would want to name, the people who are living in Car He cares every bit as much about every last person that lives everywhere on this earth as he is about the richest person that we could possibly find. Matter of fact, he may be even more concerned for those who have done without, who do not have, than he is for those who do have, because they should be responsible for what they have. And so the Lord looks at the strata of humanity, the various levels that we would look at it. Oh, you live there, or oh, you drive this, or oh, you have that. You see, we're concerned about those things, and the Lord is concerned about one thing. Where's your heart? Where are you with me? You want to be truly happy? You need to be right with me. And so the Sermon on the Mount becomes basically the New Testament liking uh, of an owner's manual. And we can look at it that way. We don't print many of them, but there was a day and time in our world where whenever you bought something, you got this big old fatty owner's manual. You know, and you'd thumb through the pages and it would tell you, you know, well, this part, if it breaks and you need to call this 800 number, and technical support will walk you through and they'll send you a new part. And they were very often quite large. Well, this is the owner's manual for spiritual life in the New Testament. This is the age of grace explained to us in a wonderful, wonderful way. And you see, if you want to know what the owner has in store, you might want to consult him every once in a while. It's a good idea to go to the Bible. You know, that wonderful acronym, basic instruction manual before leaving earth. Amen? We, we want to go to the Bible. We want to see what the Lord had to say about how we should live our lives. If we want to be happy We need to ask Him what happiness really looks like as far as a child of God is concerned. And we need to put away the foolish things of the world because the world has all kinds of of different opinions about what makes people happy. Most of the time in our day and time, it's, well, just do what makes you happy. Take care of number one. Be as narcissistic as you possibly can and you'll somehow come out happy. Your Bible says exactly the opposite of that, doesn't it? He who desires among you to be greatest shall become the servant of all. That the least is the greatest. You see, these are very paradoxical truths. The world says one way, Jesus says the other way. And I can tell you this, when you do things his way, you do have blessedness and you do have happiness. You do have joy, even in the midst of difficult things. You see, he wasn't concerned about just simply the letter of the law, but he was concerned with the spirit of the law. Why these words were written and what they mean in the way that he intended us to understand them. And so as we embark on the Beatitudes, we'll pick up with the very first one, which is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We would look at people who are poor in spirit, maybe they they might even look downcast to you and I. We would say, what's wrong? And Jesus is saying, there's something so right with them that their cares are actually my cares. Their concerns are my concerns. They want to live their lives in a way that's pleasing to me, which makes them blessed. And so as we begin to take these marvelous principles next Sunday... Uh, we're going to have Mike and Pam Roselle here, so it'll be a one-week lag time between the start uh, of the actual Beatitudes themselves. But a- as we dig in, and I want to encourage you, read ahead. Do your own homework. One of the things that helps us as we study God's Word is for you to come with some questions, for you to come with your mind ready to hear what the Lord might speak to you. Because these truths that we're going to study are the heart of simply Jesus. This this was him explaining his kingdom life to his people. And if we begin to live this way, it will transform the way you live. I'm going to have Kevin and the worship team come back up. And as they come back up, I'm going to ask you to check your own heart and to see where you're at with the Lord in your life and whether you're more concerned about the things of this life or whether you're more concerned about Him and what He wants for you. Because if you can change that one thing, all of a sudden you kind of turn on the switch to where the rest of what God wants for you becomes a lot simpler. Because I have to have my way if I'm selfish. And I want His way if I'm walking with him and so we're going to worship for a while we're going to have the prayer team come up we're going to have some ladies available to pray with you and maybe you've got something that's kind of taken the place of Jesus maybe you have something in your life that uh, is really standing in the way of you being blessed I want to encourage you God's always waiting for us to say to say Lord, change me. Lord, refresh me. Lord, renew me. Lord, create a right spirit in me. That's what he always wants to do. And so if that's you, you need some prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. We're going to worship for another 10 minutes or so. We're going to pray. And then those of you that need to go, You're dismissed to go. We're not going to hold you here. But I believe the Lord would have some work he wants to do in us tonight. And so, as we worship, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Think on that one. And ask the Lord if there's anything that's keeping you from the blessedness that he wants. Amen?